Welcome to Not Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack, or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Season 4, Episode 9, Divine Embodiment with Eleonora Amendolara. Over the next four weeks, as we close out the fourth season of Not Work Storytelling, we're going to be taking a bit of a departure from our usual format. You're accustomed to coming to this podcast for a story from mythology or folklore, and then hearing a conversation about all the ways this story still matters. Well, in this next set of episodes, we'll be talking with memoirists, who have written the stories of their own lives. As you'll hear, these contemporary stories have ancient roots, and each conversation eventually guides us back to the power of mythology and the land, as well as the resonance of the ancestors that still echo through modern life. Is it an accident that I'm interviewing four authors at this time of year? Of course not. I hope you'll consider giving one or all of these books as a gift this season. And of course, there's always a temptation to add these to your to-be-read-in-the-new-year pile. I invite you to follow that temptation. I promise that each of these books will take you on a remarkable journey. Before we explore this week's story, I have a question for you. What about your stories? Whether it's a book project that wants to be birthed, deep, authentic writing to support your business, or a personal creative project you can't quite name yet, I am here as your story healer and writing coach who can walk beside you throughout your process and help you get the words onto the page and into the world. I work with folks who are writing memoirs, chronicles of the spiritual journey, and books that explore healing and the imagination, even as they reckon with the toughest truths of life. I support entrepreneurs, especially coaches and therapists in private practice, who wish to weave their personal experiences with their professional knowledge and wisdom. Do you want to build a writing practice and develop the ideas you know you must share? I invite you to visit my website, marisagowdy.com, to learn more about my writing coaching services and to set up a free 30-minute consultation. As one year ends and a new one begins, I wish you time for deep, nourishing reads and the space to do the writing that only you can do. In this episode, our guest is Eleonora Amendolara. We begin this episode with an excerpt from her book, Divine Embodiment, The Art and Practice of Chumpy Illumination. A special note, I actually had the honor of co-writing this book with Eleonora, as she is my longtime mentor and teacher. Eleonora is a master healer with a thriving healing practice in both Brooklyn and Warwick, New York. As the founder of the Sacred Center Mystery School and a certified health kinesiology practitioner and instructor, she has been training healers and individuals on the path to spiritual awakening for more than three decades. 
Her signature healing system, Chumpy Illumination, weaves together the indigenous wisdom of the Andes, principles of sacred geometry, the science of muscle testing, and the wisdom of ancient mystery traditions from around the world. Well, I am so excited to welcome Eleonora onto the podcast today. This has been a long time coming because I have known Eleonora for a long, long time. I am a student at her Sacred Center Mystery School and have been since, I think, 2007. And I've also had the great honor of co-writing two books with Eleonora, including Divine Embodiment, The Art and Practice of Chumpy Illumination. So today, as is our way at Not Work Storytelling, we first ask the story to speak for itself, and then we'll explore its meanings and its resonances. Unique to this particular episode is that instead of really retelling a myth, we're going to ask Eleonora to tell the story of how she first encountered the Chumpy Stones in Peru. Before we dive into that, I just really want to name the way in which Eleonora's work is the source of so much of my work. Though, of course, you may know if you're a longtime Not Work listener, many, many of my stories are sourced in Ireland and in the Celtic world. Eleonora's work is sourced really around the world and across the cosmos, but especially in the Andes and in Peru. And it's really the way in which Eleonora's work is about spirituality, about the nature of the spirit, and about symbol, and how, really interestingly, it helps source my world of stories. But we'll get to all that in that whole conversation. But first, I want to just kind of set the scene for what Eleanor is going to read to us. Her first trips to Peru were in the early 1990s, shortly after the brutal communist regime, The Shining Path, had been defeated. And at this time, the intellectuals and the mystics were starting to emerge. And the Caro people, the indigenous people of the Andes, were just coming down from the mountains. So, El, with that beginning, could you tell us a bit of a story? Sure. I was there when the Caro came down from the mountains. Amongst the American visitors, there were extensive discussions about whether we were corrupting the indigenous peoples with our modern ideals and habits. Again and again, the Keto told us, don't worry, that they had read the coca leaves and felt guided to enter the world below. In their Quechuan language, the word Pachacuti means the world turned upside down. There are certain turning points in history, as we know, as when the Spanish conquistadors came to what is now South America, when old ways are exchanged for the new. It was such a time for this group that had lived according to the ways of Pachamama, Mother Earth, for centuries. Plus, they really said they liked Coca-Cola. Eventually, I would host many of the Keto in my home when they came to the United States for the first time, bringing their ancient medicine to a culture that sorely needed to be reminded to slow down and connect with the earth and with the spirit that exists before and beyond all the modern noise. Over my nearly three decades of travel to Peru, I got to know many of the influential elders and sat in ceremony with native teachers like Don Manuel. As is my way, I was following the spiritual tides, but I stayed on the edges of the crowd. I've never really studied exclusively with one single teacher or followed one specific lineage. 
though I have had teachers who activated me and helped me along the path. Even in the earliest days, I knew I was being guided to express this wisdom and this magic in a very different way, in my own way. As a woman from New York, who then and now is dedicated to meeting people where they are in the midst of the demands of the 21st century American lifestyle, I knew I was being called to let this work take its own shape in my life, in my healing practice and in my teaching. I had already explored so much and experienced so many of my own spiritual awakenings that I knew my work was about braiding together many different traditions and calling in new wisdom as appropriate, not just adopting another culture's ways as my own. So when I received my first set of chumpies, I began to understand my path, but it would take years of return visits, deep introspection and channeled wisdom to bring the work into focus. The chumpy stones have been found in archaeological excavations of sacred sites across Peru, but little is known of their original use and meaning. I first encountered the chumpies in 1997. After journeying to the Mount Nasangate with a group, I had decided to stay in Cusco on my own to witness the Inti Raimi festival on the winter solstice. That day, I explored the ruins of Pisac and other parts of the Sacred Valley with a native Peruvian anthropologist who looked at history and artifacts through the lens of a mystic. During our time together, he introduced me to the Chumpies and I asked if he could help me find a set of my own. He spoke to the local people and found a family who were willing to pass on their set of stones. The city was overflowing as people came together for this celebration of the Incan sun god. And I was told that there were no hotel rooms available in the entire city. Call it fate or call it luck. I managed to get a room in a tiny dark hostel. Shortly after I arrived, a woman knocked on my door and presented me with my first chumpies. To this day, I am not exactly sure how she found me. The set included seven stones that were carved with between one and seven mountains. These little bumps differentiated the chumpies from one another and represented the apus or sacred peaks that encircled the sacred valley. I was told that they had been passed down from generation to generation, and I believe they are about 250 years old. Oh, Eleanor, thank you so much for sharing that bit of the book with us. Of course, I know it pretty darn well, but in hearing you read it, it just makes me realize how much you do braid together in that section and the way that it really takes on this sort of mythic quality. There's your origin story and where you come from. There's the sense of the wise guide and who you were spending the day with the mystical anthropologist. There's that sense of the quest that you didn't even know you were on when the stones are brought to you. There's the huge background with Pachacuti and the, on the mythical basis of the world being turned inside out and upside down. And then, as you mentioned, the Solstice Festival, when you know the heavens themselves were aligned to make all of this work. So it felt like a departure to have this story on the show, but I'm realizing how it's exactly aligned. So thank you so much. Yeah, it is quite something, isn't it? Because there was no question 
that that day was very special. Mm. The Andean mountains brought tears to my eye the first time I landed there. I mean, I literally had tears in my eyes. And there was something so deep and mystical. And it was the time when mysticism was being awakened in Peru after the Shining Path. So all the old shamans, they call them Pacos, and anthropologists were coming out. And and the Chumpy, I don't know, the Chumpies just kind of like really spoke to me, literally. I dreamt of them every night and like was possessed by learning everything I could about the Chumpies. And that's one of the things I've learned from you that's been so powerful is the power of material objects and not in a sense of materialism, because we know we have way too much of that in our consumerist age. But to quote you, you've said so many times, it's not like we're walking through walls or levitating yet. We are material beings in the 3D world and we need our symbols to take on tangible power in our lives, like stones we can hold to represent great mountains that we see on the horizon. Yeah. Peru, in the Andes, there are many symbols and they carve many things out of stones. And what that really meant for me was the mountains were very, very special there. The Andean mountains were very, very special. And Cusco, which is the center Cusco means the center, the Costco, the center, the belly is surrounded by 12 very distinct mountains. You know, each one of them has a different personality. And so that also intrigued me very much. And the mountains were connected to the center through ley lines. And on these ley lines, there are many sacred temples that really like surround Cusco. So the whole thing just sort of, I was just like enthralled by the whole mysticism of it and possessed to find out what those mountains meant. And they called each one by name and they were personified. You know, the mountains were personified. They were actually mystical beings, you know, and they call them Apus. They're the great protectors. And and then with every indigenous person I found, because as you know, when I asked everyone to point me to the people that knew about these stones or the, the Pacos, the shamans, they would read the coca leaves. They did the like um, tarot readings. They, did, they read with coca leaves and they would say, well, the mountain, the Asangate and Salkantai, the two major mountains will lead the way. They'll tell you the story. So that intrigued me even more. So I was possessed. That was 1997. It's whatever you do the math. It's like 20, 25 years later. And I go to Peru every year. So that's kind of calls in the story piece and that, and that as it came to you in the years after working with the Chumpies, that you really called in that there were 12 and now 13 that we work with in Chumpy Illumination in this healing modality you've developed. And that each stone has a different resonance, a different meaning, a different word attached to it, right? Correct. Yeah. And each, yeah. each one of those words has its shadow, and which also gave great meaning too. There's the light, but there's always the shadow. There's always the the Baba Yaga that's waiting in the in the background to tell this, to bring the story to life, to get your attention. 
each one of those stones has the same kind of quality. And I have visited some of those mountains very directly. And as you approach the mountain, it does beckon you in or then a big cloud will come over it and then you just wait until <laughs> the clouds lift and then you're like received by the great mountain. So I think what you said was really important. It's very meaningful in that it has like an embodiment to it. Mm -hmm. When you're naming the way in which the shadow, the nega, is kind of helps us understand the light, it's like the friction and the grit that makes a story move and really compels us because we see the fullness of ourselves and ourselves in a story because it isn't all just pretty, pretty light and flowers. It isn't always just a mountain on a perfect spring day. It's also when those clouds start to loom and when the weather gets low, when you feel like it's truly forbidding. Right, right. And, and part of the medicine of any really good mythical story is that you're able to eventually hold the being, its lightness and its majestic qualities along with the sorrow, the sadness, the grief, whatever the shadow really is. So you, you know, that's the medicine that I got, I received. And that's truly like what the, the chumpies are all about for me. It's the ability to hold the light as well as the dark mm -hmm. so that we can sort of surrender to both and create a third possibility or some sort of resolution. So something that feels like it's really coming through in this conversation is the way in which the chumpy work and all of your mystical work is so deeply rooted into a specific place, into specific mountains. And yet there's also the real cosmic universality of the work that you do. And as I think I've, I've learned, well, in sitting in circle with you, that's truly what the mystery traditions have been about is that sense of really being very located in one specific place and the resonance and the, the ley lines of one point on the planet, perhaps, but then speaking all these broader truths. Because of course, many of my listeners will come to this show with a deep connection, not necessarily to Peru, but to Ireland. Right. And as you're mentioning Cusco, there's a place in Ireland called Ishnak, which is seen as really the the navel, the center point of Ireland itself. And there's ways in which, of course, these are distinct traditions that have grown in their own continents in their own way. And yet, I think you and I have discovered over the years in sort of sharing our stories and our experiences of these two very distinct landscapes, there's also all these ways in which the mythic, the energetic, the cosmic, the all really braids together and complements each other really profoundly. As you said that about Ireland, I felt that in my body too, in my bones. It's non-localized. It's, And I'm sure the mountains and the sacred places all around our globe talk to one another telepathically. And whether we're drawn to one place or another, and I think that's part of the mystery schools and part of mysticism and mythology is the ability to go outside so-called reality and into a, I don't know what you would call it, into the mega reality. Um, 
into the energetic reality, which is something mm. we don't actually have time for in our daily lives, even though it does exist. And mm -hmm. so we get a chance to really go into a more subtle energy around the physical and tap into that and, and maybe get a chance to hold that subtle energy and that and download it or embody it into our everyday life and like really breathe the expansiveness of, of our planet. Mm. I've always been also drawn to the Himalayans and have visited there uh, most recently last year too. And they have that same quality to them too. And there's many, many stories. You talk to the locals, there's many stories that come out of those great mountains as well. Yeah. You know, it feels like in certain ways, the last thing we need to do is make any sort of case for the spiritual and the sense of like, but of course, there's a subtle energetic way of being beyond our everyday reality. And yet, of course, we know that human beings have been both reaching for that and rejecting that since probably the beginning of people being able to formulate belief and an understanding of the unseen realm. And that's part of the reason why I'm bringing together this month of episodes that's really focusing more on writers who are in the work of spirit in one way or the other, whether they're coming as memoirists, as spiritual teachers, and in your case, really this fully embodied healing practice that works at the level of spirit, of mind, of body. But I'd love to talk with you just a little bit about the process of developing the book and what that's meant for your work and kind of what it's been like for you to pin these great big interstellar sort of invisible ideas onto the page and translate them into words, what that's been like for you and your work. <laughs> what a great question. So I guess it's probably about 20 years ago, I decided to use the chumpies in my healing practice you know me, one of the things I often say is let's make it real. Let's make mm -hmm. it real. Let's bring the myth. Let's bring the sacred. Let's bring the spirituality into our everyday lives. What better way than a stone holding a stone right. that represents a mountain. And mm -hmm. so I started out by creating these geometric forms around people as they lay down and we did healings. And it really did make a difference. It allowed people to get out of their heads and also get out of trying to get something out of a healing, but just to surrender mm -hmm. and receive what came to them, which was very yeah. different than wanting to get something out of, you know, you go to a healer and you want them to produce something. You want them to make you feel something. So that mm -hmm. in of itself gave me great pause to really develop bit more and more. And then as I saw people and saw the results that I was getting, that was very profound. I wanted to really, you know, write about it and record it. And then luckily for me and the work, you entered my first, my class. And so <laughs> we got to know each other and you were a writer. So, mm -hmm. you know, I always feel very grateful that the one who helped me record this work as it was growing and solidifying and becoming a real healing modality was being written by someone who actually knew the work and who was mm -hmm. in the work from, from inside. So that's a real blessing. And of course, the mountains are responsible. 
Yes. Brought us together. Yeah. Right. And I wasn't fishing for compliments there. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Because you are the type of soul that doesn't know. I, I remember that you were very happily on a path without really knowing what the end point was. And I needed somebody like that. It was a creation. We didn't know exactly where we were going with the story, but we were working together and it was this, the mountains were helping us create the story and the healing modality. So. Well, what I've learned from you is that idea of we don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I was actually that comfortable with being with that level of uncertainty until I got to sit in circle and learn with you and then sit beside you and write with you. So in that, you know, what I've come to know as a story healer, as a writing coach, is that our writing always wants to give back to us. Like we're in it in a relationship, not just to put words on the page. In a similar way of I'm not just a healer in order to do things to other people and make them feel better. It's always this deeply relational work. And I feel like I got to learn that from you because it's the whole, it's it's what the energy you embody in the mystery school. But I got to go to like the super duper triple graduate level by getting to learn with you by trying to write it down and translate these ideas that were still constantly developing and just beyond kind of the horizon. And that might change meaning when we put them on the page if we didn't quite tune in right, if we didn't quite make space and surrender for the words to do what they could and then trust the limitations of the words as well in order to transmit these ideas to people to get them curious to try the work and to you know go deeper themselves. Yes, it's a, it's a very different approach. Many people who want to learn something they enter a school and this is what we want to learn. This is how we do it. And this is what the results are. Well, I guess that's really a mystery school is anything but that <laughs> because you're <laughs> tapping into a mystery. Hello. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> the mystery will unfold as you keep working with it. And you can only work with it if you really surrender to what you don't know that you don't know. And then the words mm -hmm. come and the embodiment comes. And I feel like now really is a is an important time that these mysticisms do come out in a very mm -hmm. practical, pragmatic ways to embody and to make our lives richer. Yeah. Yeah. So Eleonora, as we sort of land our conversation for today, I'd love to kind of end where we began with that mention of the Pachacuti. And it feels really potent at this moment because we've been in a kind of an extended version of saying the world feels like we're at an inflection point. It does feel like there is this sense of being turned inside out and upside down. And that may be a new term to some people, but I'd love for you just to say a little bit more and maybe just a reflection on how you feel if that moment has, is with us right now or what your thoughts are on that? Yeah, I forget the exact number, but a Pachacuti happens every 800 years or a thousand years. I forget exactly what the number is, 
But the Pachakuti, when the world, as we know it, turns inside out, happened, of course, well, fell when the Spanish conquistadors entered um, North America and South America, and that world of the indigenous turned inside out. And then the end of that era happened in the late 1980s, and it will last for many, many, many more decades. And I can truly say that that has continued where the world as we know it, the comfortable world that we were accustomed to, it's almost like the covers are off and the unseen is being seen. And that always leads to chaos, collapse, but also resurrection and recreation. And because of that, I'm, I feel very positive about the future, but there's no easy description of what's happening now. And again, I think that this work, as well as others that are being created right now, and as you, you tell the uh, stories, and as your writers begin to write from within this place, I think it's so important. And as I'm speaking, I know it's very important for writers to write from within this place. And we don't know what we don't know here. This is actually, I can honestly say, we don't know what we don't know. And because of that, we are being called to surrender everything that we thought was real. And then the real magic happens, the real, the real mystical creation happens. And so I'm very grateful that you're, you're having these podcasts and that writers who, I'm not sure, but it may not be so comfortable for writers to not know what they're going to write when they start 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 a book. But you would be the perfect leader in that vein. I could attest to oh. that. <laughs> oh, thank you. No, I'm so well, and it's, oh, and it's so true. Like it's that sense of like we devote how much time and energy that we could theoretically never get back might be devoted to a book that we'd never finish or that an idea that just doesn't take off and how much fear we have of making a bad investment, you know, and that's such a deeply 20th, 21st century mindset that just doesn't serve us as creatives, as spiritual beings. How do you know how much time you need on the meditation cushion or how much time you need sitting in circle at the mystery school before whatever it is that you don't know you're even looking yeah. for finally starts to seep into your bones and shift your consciousness and help you tell a new story. And as I sat around many a circle with the indigenous uh, people of Peru, you know, we would start with a little, a little chewing the coca leaves, a little spreading, um, some flowers, a little chatting, a little this, a little that, not even knowing what we were creating together. It could have lasted for hours. That 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 always mesmerized me because there was a never an ending in sight. <laughs> and when when the sunset or whatever the um na whatever nature symbol there was, then then that was when it it ended for the night. But it continued mm -hmm. the next day. And that's that's my love for the indigenous people is that yeah. they do ceremony like nobody else, right? And I think I've learned a lot from that. Well, I love kind of 
closing us on that idea of what if we liberate our sense of ritual and practice mm -hmm. from it has to be done in this way, fit into this time on my calendar. And instead, it unfolds with a cup of tea yeah. and a collection of flowers and a chat and being focused on what's happening in the sky and the air around us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amen to that. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. Oh, well, Eleonora, thank you so much for coming to Not Work Storytelling. It's thank at last we've so had you here. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. So because I know this so well, I will invite folks to visit you at sacredcenter.net because that is where you'll find the book, Divine Embodiment, The Art and Practice of Chumpy Illumination. You'll also find all of Eleanor's classes, which are taught both in Warwick in the Hudson Valley of New York and online, including the uh, video on demand intro to Chill, which is, of course, our affectionate name for Chumpy Illumination. So I invite you to head over to sacredcenter.net. You can also find the book on Amazon and do follow Eleanor on Instagram as well. Thank you so much, Eleonora. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love, and your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through season three and beyond please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub, Myth is Medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagowdy.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billionbath.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people.